Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. This week, we're joined by the raddest dude on the planet, Jim McClure. <laughs> oh, I forgot I had told you that stupid nickname, didn't I? Oh, hi, how we doing? Never let it be said I will not commit to a bit. <laughs> oh goodness there, there there's a story a stupid stupid story behind that name uh so maybe we, we tell that later on but uh yeah I'm, I'm i'm excited to be here well i like to start from the very beginning how did you first get involved with tabletop rpgs Hmm. Okay. So I, I have two different origin stories. Uh, which one do you want to hear? Cause there, there is the me as a, as a young lad at a game store that kind of had a first experience. And then there was my first actual true experience. So, so I'll let you pick which of the two stories you want. Yeah, we've got time for both. <laughs> All right, you you want to do both of them? Okay. Uh, so, uh, my very very first ever interaction with uh, with tabletop was I was going to a a local comic shop, a comic and game shop in Salisbury, Maryland, where I'm from, little town, and it was Illusion Games and Comics back when it was in the old mall. And uh, I was going there every Saturday morning for Yu-Gi-Oh tournaments because I, I I love my collectible card games, and I was I was actually pretty good at Yu-Gi-Oh, even though I know Magic is the cool thing that the cool kids do. I, I, I love me some Yu-Gi-Oh. Uh, so I was going there uh, every Saturday and uh, competing at the, at the tournaments that they had. And the store at, at that point in time was kind of like divided in two, not by any sort of wall or barricade or, or magic spell, but by one side of the store was all of the Yu-Gi-Oh players and the other side of the store was all of the D&D players. The two did not come together. We, we both pretty much called each other nerds. Ha ha ha. So it was it was one particular Saturday morning, and I had uh, I'd been knocked out of the tournament early, which of course never ever happened because I'm such a wonderful Yu-Gi-Oh player, right? Uh, so I was bored, and I was like, "Nah, I didn't want to just go home." So I'm like, "Hey, maybe I will. Uh, maybe I'll head on over to the D and D players and see what this whole Dungeons and Dragons thing is about." So I walked on over to, uh, to to the Dungeons and Dragons side, and I walked up to a table and I go, "Hey, I would like to learn how to play your game." Uh, what do I need to learn to play? And they stacked up about eight books in front of me and they went, read all of those and then you'll know how to play. And I was like, all right, seriously, no, I want to play this thing. So they got me a character sheet and they they, they got me uh, sort of together and we, we started playing. And uh, it was kind of clear they didn't exactly want me there. Um, but we I remember we, we went into this town. We had a battle map and we had figures there. I didn't really know what was going on. Uh, and I said something snarky to an NPC. And a member of the party uh, cast uh, freeze or time stop, some, some old spell on me. I don't know AD&D that well cast it on me and they rolled and they went, uh, you're frozen for four hours. And I went, okay. And there was a pause and they all looked at me and went, and we play in real time. And I was like, oh, I guess that's my cue. And I got up and I left never to return to D&D, or at least not for another uh, eight, nine years, something like that. So that's that's the first origin story. The closest nerds get to jumping in somebody. <laughs> uh pretty much pretty much so uh so, so you want to hear that then the uh the, the other story where i actually got to got to play for real the first time yes let's hear the story that doesn't make me sad 
<laughs> yeah, because that one's not uh, not the super best story. Uh, the second time was uh, was a much better experience. Uh, I had moved to the the state of Ohio for work and didn't really know anyone here. And uh, I had moved with with uh, my significant other Emily, and uh, she had made some friends at work, and they were going to do a Dungeons and Dragons game. And she knew a little bit about it from from playing before. Uh, and she kind of came to me and says like, "Hey, there's a group of people that I met, and they're going to be starting up a Dungeons and Dragons game. Uh, do you want to play?" And I I went, Psh, nerds, no way am I going to play Dungeons and Dragons like that's and I wasn't even connecting it back to the previous experience, but I just blew it off like nothing. So she went without me. And when she comes back, she is just like so elated from the experience that it is the greatest thing ever. And she's like, you have to go next week. You will love it. You absolutely have to go. So I was I still didn't want to go. And I, in the end, I was I was drug kicking and screaming to my first Dungeons and Dragons fourth edition game. And I was given a character sheet that was Muck Tuck the Barbarian. And we were rolling D20s and we were making uh, mega death jokes and just having a ridiculously good time and that night when I got home and went to sleep in every one of my dreams I had to roll a d20 to do anything uh, and ever since then I've been in love with tabletop so those are those are my two origin stories fourth edition for some people they think of it more as a video game approach to RPGs than a role-playing approach to RPGs was that the case for you and did that help you get into the game Absolutely. And, and, and I very much appreciate the way that you, you asked that question. Cause of course, there's a bunch of different ways you could decide to ask that question. Uh, yeah, uh, fourth edition, I, I, I am a firm believer of fourth edition was designed to emulate MMOs. It was designed to, to captivate that audience. And while I was never an MMO player, what my experience was, was JRPGs. It, it, it was Fire Emblem. It was Final Fantasy. It was Legend of Dragoon. It was, it was these old games. And when I played it, I went, this is just like them. It's perfect, and I love it, but it's got the flexibility that I want, and I absolutely love, love, love 4th Edition as an introduction game to tabletop for people that come from the video game side, because me personally, it clicked immediately. I understood exactly what the concepts were. I understood exactly what was happening. I, I'm I'm on record as, as one of the 12 people that unashamedly loves 4th Edition D&D probably has some aspect to do with with it being the first game that I played but I honest to goodness think a lot of the the backlash that came against fourth edition didn't have anything to do with the system but had to do with the fact that it dared to be something different it dared to take D&D in a new direction and a lot of people didn't want D&D to go into a new direction or at least not specifically that direction and sort of the combination of that factor and the fact that it brought a lot of people into tabletop who hadn't played it before because it was familiar to what they're looking to ended up in a little bit of a culture clash. For me, it was great because I wasn't involved with the community. I was on online forums. I didn't care. This was just a wonderful experience that I had a ridiculous amount of fun with, and I, I still love 4th edition D&D to this day because of it. Were there any particular high points during that game that really sunk its teeth into you? The core experience itself to me was uh, w w was wonderful, and, and I was completely and totally in in love with it the the couple things that it did uh, there was one uh kind of bad experience actually that happened in that first game that i kind of glossed over a little bit 
And that is, I remember my very first combat encounter. I, I had, um, again, Muktuk the Barbarian. Uh, I love that character. And it was my very first combat. And there was, I don't even remember what the whole setup was, but there was a, a cart that was on fire in sort of the middle of the battlefield, typical ambush by either goblins or kobolds. I forget now, uh, whatever level one creature. And I was like, oh, okay, I I see the cinematic thing that's going here. I go, okay, when it got my turn, I go, what I want to do is I want to run and I want to jump over the cart and then attack the the goblin or kobold or whatever it was. Uh, And the DM goes, um... There's no skill for that, uh, but if you look at here, you can just do diagonal movement, move around it, and get there within the same turn. So he told me I wasn't allowed to jump through the fire to have a nice cinematic thing, but I could just sort of run around it. And I kind of had one of those, like, crestfallen moments. I'm like, but I want to do the cool thing where I jump through fire because that would be fun, uh, which I didn't say uh, because I'm, I'm, I was on best behavior. But that was one of those sort of eye-opening moments that came into into my, my GMing side later on of, you know, okay, yes, if it makes no difference, just allow the not-so-good good moment from it. Um, but it, it was just sort of in general uh, getting immersed in what this world was and in uh, mechanics that could drive story, because that was something I hadn't really experienced to that point. Um, so, you know, really getting to to open up and see what that was, you know, I was immediately flooded by ideas and ideas for game design because I've been designing games since I was 10 years old. So my brain immediately started going to work of how can I use this wonderful new knowledge? In retrospect, do you think the GM was trying to have you take the safe option to avoid your first roll being a failure that leads you into rolling around in fire in a cart <laughs> uh it, it, it's certainly possible uh ultimately i ended up not not knowing the guy that well we played about four play sessions uh and then him and his significant other that sort of started the game uh ended up actually m- moving to a different state uh and then i ended up running the next game so i don't i don't know him or his gm style well enough to to make a a comment on that it would certainly be a, a logical thing to do although if, if, if i could be selfish and just talk about what jim wants jim absolutely absolutely loves failure and loves those moments and loves leaning into those moments. But uh, that's certainly a possibility. It seems like a lot of players will start off when they're younger, trying to make the perfect character. Did you have the opposite where you enjoyed exploring a character with flaws more? Oh yeah, I, I'm I'm the absolute well I'm I'm gonna say worst or best depending on on your particular opinion of, of, of gaming with me. Of I optimize my characters for fun. I've never really cared that much about mechanical strengths or weaknesses. So like the first character that I actually sort of designed because that very first character you know it was handed to me. I sort of had the sheet, but then I started digging into fourth edition designing a character, and it was designing a character from one of my my previous stories that I've written. Of I go I want him to to use a sword and a hammer and a magic wand or more like magic staff thing. Uh, so I literally built a character around using those different things because it was cool and it was interesting to me. Uh, at the end of the day, they were mechanically significantly weaker than if I just went one direction, but it was fun. It was interesting to me. 
I, I've pretty much always made characters solely for for my own personal enjoyment from them and and from a, a fun role play and a fun team standpoint. Uh, I've never really wanted perfect's boring. You know, I I, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want to be the, the the loner that has no attachments. I don't want to be the the perfect soldier that wins every fight. That's ah, oh, that's that's terrible and boring to me. I want to give my GM the most amount of ways to fuck with me. Like that's interesting. That's engaging. An interesting side to that too is one of the common things uh, that that gets brought up a lot when it was within your question too is you know do, do you make a character with flaws and and my answer to that is is yes but there's so much more to it because uh, when a lot of people hear flaws what they think about is you know they think about a character that has uh, gambling problems or epilepsy or you know wh- whatever the case may be here's the thing that they're bad at or they fail at or whatever um, one of the most eye opening things is once I got into Legend of Five Rings, uh, within there, they have advantages and disadvantages, which is a very similar thing. One of their disadvantages was eye-opening to me, and one of the disadvantages was true love, which it just clicked in that moment. I go, a narrative disadvantage is anything that I would act against my best interest because of, whether that be fear, whether that be love, whatever the case may be. So what I started doing is I started building characters that had all of these different layers to it of not only was I afraid of stuff, but I love stuff and I lusted after stuff and I had weaknesses for stuff, both good and bad. But all of those are are giving the GM different ways that they can mess with my character. And and my, my only buy-in as a player is... I have to go along with what I've given the, the GM the prime for. If, if I say that I love chocolate cake and my character absolutely loves it, when the GM puts a chocolate cake store that has two evil-looking mercenaries on the front steps, I can't go, ooh, better avoid that place. I've got to go in and get me some chocolate cake. Uh, circumstances be damned. So I've always sort of from the beginning played into in, into those concepts and always had had a lot of fun with it. You said you took over as the GM for that game. Was it a continuation of the game, or did you start fresh? Oh, I, I absolutely started fresh. Uh, yeah, we, we played that for for four sessions, and then the, the sort of the, the core group of us were like, hey, we really enjoyed this. We want to keep playing. And, and some of my, my good friends, uh, Tom McMillan, um, who supported me a lot in, in my game stuff, just a wonderful guy. Uh, I kind of met him actually originally in that first game, and then he wanted to play, as well as Emily, my significant other, and then uh, some of the new friends that we met up here. So I really wanted to, uh, I, I really wanted to run. And actually, funny story on that, after that very, very first play session that I played in, I actually had the thought, I go, I wonder if one day if I get good enough at this, someone will let me GM for them. Like, that was literally the mentality that I had. I was like, maybe I can get good enough to GM. Little did I know, like, everyone always is looking for a GM. But uh, anyway, so so when when they left, um, you know, and, and that we didn't have the game anymore, I sort of raised my hand like, yeah, I'll, I'll run something. And uh, I knew what I was going to do. I was going to run the best game that could be ran. I planned that thing out from level one to level 30. I had all of the towns. I had everything set up. I knew exactly what that game was. And man, we went into that first play session and it was a disaster because of terrible, terrible GMing on my part. But that's where we all start. We we, we start with what we think's right, what we think's best, and then we, we learn and we grow. What kind of setting did you have in mind for that game? 
it was it was a very sort of generic fantasy. I, I always run in in my own sort of little worlds and settings, and I didn't know really anything about how to how to develop these things out. So what I had was this concept of essentially they were they were a group of soldiers that that work for this one general guy, and they were going to go out on a mission because something was happening. I don't know. It's been a while. But they were going to go out on a mission, and right when they left town, they get attacked by this super strong group of warriors that sort of killed them, destroyed them, killed their general guy, uh, and then worked on sort of taking over the, uh, the the local region. And they were kind of working to fight back against that. And sort of all of the problems came about because it was like, oh, we're going to start off with a squash match where you know the players are meant to lose because the the, the GM puts super powerful enemies at them. You know, the, they of course immediately didn't believe that the general died because he died off screen. He was supposed to come back later. You know, it, it, it was all the all the tropes that, you know, you, you would sort of expect, you know, like uh, what, what, what you hear in a, a bad GM forum of, of of all of the stuff that the bad GM did. I, I put every single one of them, I front loaded them right in that first play session. I was like, here's all the worst things that I think are the greatest things in the world. Uh, so that was was kind of the, the, the setting and what happened. And uh, we got better from there. We, we ended up playing for probably about 10, 12 play sessions before uh, a couple of people in that group sort of fell off. And then we, we discovered the wonders of other RPGs like Legend of Five Rings, and we started going heavily, heavily in that direction. In the early days of GMing, were you more interested in the mechanics that a system gave you to tell a story or the setting that a system gave you to tell a story? I would definitely say I was more interested in the the mechanics. I'm I'm interested in setting. I've always been interested in setting and and more specifically story. Uh, I I'm a very even to this day most most every game that I run it, it's very much about the people in the world far more than what the world is. And I've other than L5R, which is kind of its own little little world, um, I've essentially never ran a game in the established canon or the established setting. I've never ran in any of the established D and D stuff. I've I've literally just taken it and I go, okay, generic fantasy world that has goblins, whatever in it, whatever the book says about, you know, goblins and goblin culture, just ignore that because I'm doing my own thing. Um, so like d and I've, I've never ran in, in any of the, the, the standard in most games I haven't. Like I said, L5R has a very heavy established setting and I kind of play within its parameters, but I still even change things from that established setting, even though I love it so much. So uh, I really did like playing around with the mechanics um, because with fourth edition D&D, it's actually what I attribute to, you know, being able to design and pull off a very interesting combat encounter is essentially required with fourth edition D&D because you're going to be in that combat encounter for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half, whatever the case may be. It has to be interesting. You can't just sort of like, oh, it's a thing. And then it lasts for an hour and everyone's having a snooze fest. You have to be able to tell interesting stories and have interesting events occur within combat, in my opinion to to make fourth edition D&D sing and and playing that game and starting out is something that really helped in that regard. So uh, I guess the, the direct answer to your question would be, uh, you know, I, I think I was probably more interested in, in mechanics than setting, but with, with mechanics, I was still interested in how those mechanics told a story. Starting with fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons, which is such an important visual game, did it lead to any difficulties trying to get involved in 
theater of the mind games. You know, I, I don't think so, and, and it's probably because there was such a, a dramatic shift, because when we left, and I've sort of talked about it, when we left 4th edition, what we got into was playing Legend of Five Rings, and Legend of Five Rings is such a dramatic shift in every way from Dungeons & Dragons. It's just an entirely different different beast to it. So to start with, yeah, it, it's designed for that theater of the mind style play. You know, it's got the rules for movement, but they're honestly clunky because it's really not designed for it, but it, it has a whole bunch of other components, so at the same time we, we were sort of hit over the head with this concept of like, no, we're, we are going to do an entirely different system, and we're going to do an entirely different system that is intentionally subverting what we're used to in tabletop. So an example of this would be with Legend of Five Rings. Monetary wealth and items are meaningless. You are a samurai. If you walk into a town, you just say, bring me food and give me lodging, and it's immediately provided for you. Any regular items that you want are immediately provided for you. Any weapons that you need, food, horses for travel, it's all given to you. And on top of that, you can't take anything off a dead bodies because that requires an honor loss to do it. So there's no looting the dead bodies. There's no going for treasure. Money is completely meaningless and pointless to you. So all of a sudden it becomes like, whoa, 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 whoa. We just removed like a large portion of the standard motivations used in tabletop to go into the dungeon to get loot, to get money, to do a thing. All of that's stripped away. You're not allowed to use that as a story anymore because it's meaningless. What do you have? And suddenly it becomes, oh, this is a game that wants to tell stories about characters and it wants to tell interpersonal stories. It wants to tell about the difference, what you have to deal with, with honor uh, versus duty. It wants you to have these moral dilemmas to it. Uh, so it really opened our eyes. So we sort of got hit with everything at once of we went from, a, you know, D&D &D style dungeon quest and, and getting armor and getting magic items and leveling up and all that to L5R where it's no battle maps, it's theater of the mind, it's Money doesn't matter. It's all about honor. There's all these weird social rules to it. There's social combat. Uh, there's dueling, which allows and essentially encourages PvP to happen, which, of course, is a big no-no everywhere else. All of these the concepts sort of came and hit us together. So we kind of had a brief, like, relearning tabletop on our own that occurred sort of all together uh, that included both the, the, the change from, from a battle map to theater of the mind as well as all these other dynamics to it. So it was, it, it was a, a big... Big difference, but we, uh, we we got ourselves in it pretty quick, and, and of course, I've loved it ever since. Do you think it's important for a GM to have been in the role of a player before GMing? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, wow. You know, I don't know if I have an answer to that. Uh, you know, the, the honest, easy answer would to say it, it, it certainly helps, um, you know, but that's that's such an easy answer to give that I don't know if it's actually true. I I personally am of the belief that GMing and playing have entirely different skill sets to them. You're doing entirely different things. Um, and, and it comes from the uh, to uh, we're, we're going to get get high high hat designer talk here, um, but uh, from a game design design standpoint. Uh, th there is a five page, I call it the game designer's Bible called the MDA, a formal approach to game design. 
Uh, and one of the things that, that it says within this document is that, as it's putting it, game designers and players look at the, the situation from exact opposite directions. And that is a game designer looks at mechanics, then dynamics, then aesthetics. A player interacts with aesthetics and then sees the dynamics and then sees the mechanics. Mechanics have a slightly different meaning in this than what we would expect it to. It's the same thing with a GM and players. We're, we're both interacting with the same thing, but we're interacting at it from entirely different sides uh, in a traditional tabletop. Obviously, there's some GM-less games and things of that nature, but in a, in a D&D, in a Pathfinder, in a, in a game that has sort of a traditional GM structure, um, we're looking at it from exact opposite directions, and I truly believe they are entirely different skill sets from being a good GM to a good player. And ultimately, of course, everyone's there to have fun but it, it is a, a different approach to the two. Um, it would be really interesting to see uh, I've not really talked to or brought up that question of of people that started GMing and GM for a long time before they became a player. I'd be I would honestly be curious to the answer to your own question because I don't have one. In last week's episode we had a conversation with the Strix and she brought up satanic panic. The actual thing that happened, but this is the closest thing I'm ever going to get to a segue. <laughs> At what point in the design of that game did you decide whether or not to have a GM? And do you Ooh. make that decision mechanically or atmospherically, if that makes sense? Yeah, um, that's a, a, a very, very solid question. And Strix is, is a phenomenal person, a phenomenal game designer. So I'll, I'll give a shout out back to her. But, uh, um, yeah, the, cause it, it, it does make a big difference. Um, you know, whether you're looking at a game that is GM less or a game that has a GM and what that GM's position in the world is. I pretty much knew right from the start with Satanic Panic, which is a, a role playing game that I designed and I kickstarted back in, in March of this year as of, as of this podcast coming out. Uh, had, had a very successful Kickstarter. It's currently in, in production, but the, the decision to make it a, a, a sort of traditional game with a GM, uh, was kind of out of necessity. You know, I, I I saw what I was building mechanically with this system, uh, which is a, a mission-based system. So essentially the team gets a mission, they're going to go out and accomplish this mission and hopefully do it well. So there's sort of that need for, you know, hey, do we need a GM that can sort of set up these missions or can we let players kind of create their own? This was one of the conversations that we had. And then we started looking at what is the challenge of the game? What is the mechanical challenge, the role play challenge, whatever the case may be? of this game. And the end result of that is there are essentially several different ways, uh, and I'm going to use sort of aggressive language here, that the GM can attack the players. You know, in, in a traditional D&D, a, a GM is going to attack the players with, with damage or status effects. Like, that's that's how you're going to hurt the players. In Satanic Panic, you can certainly do that. That is, that is part of it. But there's actually other ways that you can mechanically attack the players. And, and to express what I mean, 
mean is one of the things you can do is you can force them essentially to cause collateral damage. Within the game, the players have the ability to essentially dish out a very, very large amount of damage very, very quickly. They can essentially annihilate everything in front of them. And the only thing that's controlling them on that is if they roll too high, they deal this thing called collateral damage. And collateral damage affects their team budget and it all sort of ties back in together. So one of the things that I can do is I can make an encounter that might be easy for them to deal with, but causes them to have to roll super high to eliminate a whole bunch of enemies really quickly, which causes them to deal collateral damage. So now I can attack their hit points, I can give them status effects, and I can make them do collateral damage. But I can also do more than that, I can force them to increase the local panic level through actions and through setting up scenarios, which is its own chart that goes up. And I can force them to roll the d20. And that is in the middle of the table, there's actually a d20 that sits throughout the whole game. And anytime uh, essentially anything demonic happens, that d20 ticks up. And it can keep going higher and higher. And if it ever hits 20, then all hell breaks loose. So what I can do, and the players have essentially a way they can re-roll it to, to reset it, but they risk their own corruption. So I can set up situations where, again, they're not at physical risk, but I'm making them re-roll that D20 to giving them higher, higher chances of corruption. So what all happens with this is the result is I felt it was best to, to have a GM to set this up because that way they can apply pressure and essentially, quote unquote, attack the players in these different aspects that are all interesting mechanical challenges but would be much better done from a GM that can sort of set these up as continual challenges as opposed to sort of just letting the players kind of make these things up as they go, like what happens with a lot of uh, uh, no, no GM games. So that was kind of how the decision got made to like, this is a traditional tabletop game. It definitely needs a traditional GM because they have a lot of interesting avenues to test the players, uh, both mechanically and roleplay-wise. For the design process, do you have people that focus on attacking the design from the player viewpoint or attacking the design from the GM viewpoint? Or do you have everybody checking all angles all the time? You know, that that's an interesting question. I, I have uh, the, the game for the, the Kickstarter backers is now in, in, in uh, beta testing where they're essentially now taking it. This is the first time that they've other people besides me are taking it and running it. The GM side is uh, very, very easy to run in this game. It, it's intentionally sort of designed that way uh, so that can be very minimal load on, on the GM. So a lot of the testing sort of up to this point has been on the players and the player enjoyment for it. I'm kind of, I, I guess, a little bit old school in that regard. Uh, I think the GM is there to facilitate a fun, interesting event for his players. And really, the key to a good time is if the players are having a good time. Because if the GM is running a game and all the players are super into it and invested, I've never met a GM that was like, oh, that was terrible. My players were so into it and they were having so much fun. Like, if, if, if the players are having fun and they're giving energy, then the GM's getting that energy too. So, what we need to do is then make it the least amount of work for the players to have the most amount of fun. So the GM will have the most amount of fun. And that's sort of the, the direction that, that I approach that with. So in all of my play testing up to this point, it's been very heavily on the, on the player side, making sure that the players are having fun, that they have a, a good, good mechanical interest in getting feedback from their side, as well as streamlining and cutting down as much of the, the GM responsibility as I can to make it nice and easy experience 
experience for them to handle. Uh, we're now at the stage where, where GMs are, are running and playing this game, and most of the feedback I've gotten so far has been very much a, hey, this is a super easy game for a GM to pick and run, for, pick up and run from a traditional uh, tabletop standpoint. Uh, so the feedback on that I've been getting so far is great. And this is sort of once we once we hit that beta test stage where other people are out in the world taking and running this game, uh, that's when I, I feel that you get the, the good GM feedback side. Is it possible for a GM to play this game wrong? <laughs> I love I'm in love with that question. That is a, a phenomenal question because it gets into a, a much larger point and a much larger philosophy. Uh, possibly a controversial opinion here. I'm going to say yes, absolutely. You know, the, the GM advice section of this book, which is what I'm writing now, is specifically geared towards not how do you play a role-playing game. I don't suppose anyone's going to buy Satanic Panic if they've not already played Dungeons & Dragons or one of the other games. It is how do you run this game? You know, reality is we, we live in 2017. If, if you want any generic system, if you want generic fantasy, if you want generic sci-fi, it already exists out in the world. For, for an indie designer like me, uh, the important thing that I want to be able to provide is is a specific experience, and I want to provide a, a specific play experience and feel that you're not going to get anywhere else. And and I do feel like I've I've achieved that with Satanic Panic from my own test and from the feedback that I've been getting. So uh, how how someone would run this game wrong? Uh, I guess I would say I would explain what this game does well and the feel that it's going for. The concept, which we haven't even really talked about it that much, but the concept is it's the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, we're in the, the height of the satanic panic, except everything everyone was saying about it is true. Tabletop is actually causing people to summon demons. It's actually turning kids evil. And you play government agents tasked with containing, controlling, and eliminating tabletop. So you're essentially secret agents that go around and break up these rings of tabletop players. So when I was designing this game, I, I wanted to get a very specific feel to it, which is the feel that you kind of see every time that you, you've seen this trope play out in movies. Now, typically, the government agents are seen as the bad guys. They're the they're, they're the ones that show up and want to want to take E.T. They're the uh, the, the, the ones in uh, in the strains that uh, go, go to the diner and have to have to clean up afterwards. And I won't spoil it any more than that if you haven't seen it. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's the um, the. Those are our view of the government agents. They are incredibly powerful. I didn't want to get rid of that. I wanted the players 80% of the time. It's right at the top of my design goals. 80% of the time, I want the players to be more powerful than what they're fighting. So then it becomes, how do you make that interesting? And how you make that interesting is all of the other mechanical ways I described before that you can attack the players. Combats are challenges. They are challenges not just about depleting hit points between the forces, but they're doing it in a contained, controlled way. It's doing it without causing collateral damage. It's doing it without increasing the local panic level. It's hopefully doing it without gaining any corruption from rolling the d20, and it's doing it while surviving and not actually dying to the combat. So if you removed that feel, if, 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 you, if you as a G had a, a combat encounter and you put, you know, tabletop or sort of your basic enemy and all of a sudden the players just ran through it like it was nothing and you went, oh, goodness, this is this is wrong. Like they just blew those away like they were nothing. All right. I need to I, I, I need to I need to put stronger creatures in here. And if you kept trying to design the combat challenges like what you would expect from a D&D &D combat challenge. 
I would say at that point you would be running the game wrong because it's going to lose its feeling. It's going to lose its mechanics. It's going to suddenly turn into this hyper lethal, hyper deadly game that it's not supposed to be. And that's because you're essentially having them fight a higher level encounter than they are all the time. So that would be one aspect where I would actually say, yes, it is is very possible to to run this game wrong because it's designed to give a specific experience to it. Is it built on a pre-existing system or is it built from the ground up? It is absolutely built from the ground up. This is an odd Jim McClure-ism, and that is that uh, as as a game designer, I don't get creative energy and creative juice from working in another system. Plenty of other people do, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But, but me personally, I have to have my own toy to play with. So every game that I've designed and every game that I, I will design uh, through my publishing company, Third Act Publishing, they're all built on their own unique proprietary system because that's what gets me excited, man. That's what gets me out of the bed in the morning. You know, the, okay, I want to make this thing happen. I want to have this experience and this feel to it. And I want to custom design something that delivers that feel. Uh, so, you know, to, to just expand upon that a little bit, uh, that's pretty much how my games come to be. It, it is a type of player and experience that I personally want to have in a tabletop game. And then when I can't find that experience, what happens is I make it. So whenever I have this idea, like for Satanic Panic, oh, we're government agents and we actually play the super powerful people, I went around and looked. And there aren't systems out there where you play the powerful people that are interesting. I haven't found those. So I ended up making my own. Uh, same thing with Reflections. Uh, same thing with Reach of Titan, which is the next game. Same thing with with uh, uh secret project that I can't talk about because I'm on under an NDA. Uh, I want to be able to make a system that delivers a feel to it. To me, that's the that's the future of game design because we have generic systems, we have generic fantasy, we have generic sci-fi. I'm not going to try and reinvent the wheel on that. What I am going to try and do from a design standpoint is give you a specific experience and feel that you can't get anywhere else. And, and to do that for me personally, that means I have to make my own system to accompany it. Were there any gameplay mechanics that you had thought up for Satanic Panic that you had to put the kibosh on when you realized it didn't quite fit? <laughs> uh, yes, um, th there's been there, there's always a ton of that, uh, honestly, within games um, with Satanic Panic, mostly little stuff. But uh, I, I will I will give one one big example, um, and that is the the core mechanic of the game. Uh, when, when we started designing on this, I had this wonderful, and this is, this is a cautionary tale to designers to, to always, always keep your mind open. So, uh, let me, if I may, let me tell you a story here for a minute. And th this story is of a, a, a brilliant young game designer, as handsome as he is brilliant, who had this idea for this wonderful game. And he knew exactly what he wanted the core mechanic to be. It was going to be sort of a take on Powered by the Apocalypse, but giving more choice to it. And uh, it was brilliant and it was elegant and he knew exactly what it was. And he had a design meeting with his buddy who was going to design this game with him. His buddy has never designed a game before in his life. He's only ever played D&D &D 3.5 and 5th edition. Never played any other RPGs, but he's going to get him used to, he's going to get his buddy used to, to playing this game. Or uh, I'm sorry, he's going to get his buddy used to designing this, uh, designing games. Uh, so they have their, their first meeting. Uh, the brilliant young designer explains his, his awesome thing to it. Uh, the buddy gets all excited about this game and the buddy runs back and writes up 20 pages of the game in the next week before their next meeting. 
Well, when the buddy comes back with these papers, the brilliant young designer looks at it and goes, oh, that's not the core mechanic that that I wanted. And the buddy goes, yeah, I know. I made some changes to it and I came up with this different mechanic. And the brilliant designer was like, oh, ho, 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 ho. Listen, this is your first rodeo. I realize you don't understand what an elegant mechanic is, but there's a reason I'm doing what I'm doing. And the buddy was very insistent. He goes, we should try it. So the game designer and the buddy gets a group of people together, actually two different groups on two different nights. And they run the game one way and they run the game the other way. And the result after those games were ran is the brilliant young game designer that's as handsome as he was brilliant uh, had to swallow his crow and go, you know what? While my wonderful, elegant design works exactly as I'd hoped, your design is just more fun. Plain and simple. The players just enjoyed it more. It's more fun. And... The game designer had to eat his crow silently because he never told all of this to the buddy uh, and re- come to the realization that, yes, everyone has good ideas. And if you're closed off and won't let yourself open up to them, you won't realize how good certain ideas can be. So to, to answer your question on that, sort of the big thing that changed was the original core design, which, of course, I, I, I'm facetiously the, the, the brilliant, handsome game designer. I'm in actuality, neither of those things. Uh, but I, I had, a, I had a, a mechanic that I thought was great and I thought it was perfect. I, I will ultimately end up using it somewhere else. Uh, but when when my buddy Jim Merritt, who co-owns Third a third act publishing with me came into me with that system and we play tested it. I, I literally just had to stop and go, yeah, that is just more fun than what I was going to do. So that was one of the, the core things that what I ended up throwing out was the core mechanic. Now we say throw it out. Nothing ever gets thrown out. It goes into a bin and I've, I've got other ideas to do something with it in the future. So that's probably the, the biggest one from satanic panic. Now Strix got this question in regards to Bluebeard's bride. If you had an unlimited budget and could run a game of Satanic Panic anywhere, where would it be? (laughs) And I will also give you weather control. <laughs> uh, you know, weather control doesn't doesn't matter on this, but I I know exactly wh- where I would run this game. Uh, I would I would rent out the the Oval Office, and we would do this thing right in the White House on the biggest possible desk that we could. Uh, we would do it with suits and brandy and cigars, and whoever was there would have a wonderful time as we 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 sit in the head of the free world and play this stupid government conspiracy game. And uh, I think that's exactly what i would do with it with the tools that people have now to run games on the internet with friends all over the world are you finding yourself designing games with tools built in for that that maximize the connectivity on the internet or mechanics that can be easily transcribed to an internet format let me answer that question like this. Uh, I'd mentioned before that I have a, a secret project going on that I'm actually going to be designing a game for someone else. Uh, that game that I'm designing is a game that is specifically to be designed to play on an online role-playing environment. 
So I have a lot to say about that that I can't say because of a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, but I will say this. I do think the direction of going to online play, uh, you know, the, the success of, of things like Roll20 and, and other virtual tabletop platforms has shown us there is a huge, massive audience that wants to play tabletop and either can't find it locally or just in a place where there aren't people around and they want to have this kind of interaction. A lot of tabletop games are not set up well for that type of play. I will say in, in the games that I've designed, uh, I think they can run very smoothly online. It, it is one of the thoughts that I've had. But as far as designing specifically to that, I think uh, 12 months from now, we can have a, a much better, much more in-depth discussion uh, on, on that very, very topic. But I can't talk too much about it at this moment. In your opinion... Is there a best system to bring in new players to role-playing and new GMs to running games? Yes. Um, I think there are... Um you know, interestingly enough, I hadn't considered it from the, the GM perspective, uh, but uh, from the player perspective, there, there's two games. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to cheat the answer slightly and give you two answers. And the two games, one we already talked about, Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition. Yes, you all heard me correctly. Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition, I believe, is a phenomenal game to bring a certain group of people into role-playing. Because the big complaints with D&D 4th Edition is combat takes so long, and there's so much prep, and character creation takes long, and there's so many mechanics and choices. And I'm going like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The entire video game audience loves that. They play games that are essentially nothing but a constant combat encounter. That's what first-person shooters are. Uh, there is a large large portion of the audience that understands that and loves that type of play experience, why would you try and bring them in differently? Uh, so one of my answers is D&D 4th Edition. The other answer is uh, a game called Everyone is John. People may have heard, probably have heard of this game before. Uh, everyone is John's a very popular indie game. It's out there. It's free. Uh, essentially, everyone around the table plays uh, different personalities within John, a crazy person from Minneapolis, and you have objectives that you're trying to get done. Uh, this game is perfect for people that come from a a theater or an improv background or or don't like heavy mechanics but want to get into it because of the role play. Because what is brilliant about this game uh, for new players is it allows essentially two play the GM and one player to interact at a time. And then you become the active player essentially through a bidding process. So people that are new, they don't really, they don't know what they don't know. And that's what a lot of people forget. They've been playing tabletop for a while. It's like, yeah, just come in and play a character and do whatever you want. And they don't even understand what do whatever you want means. They have no context for it. So them being able to come in to sit quietly, not bid on the first couple rounds and watch other more experienced people play a little bit, then they go and oh, I see what we're doing here. I see what's fun and interesting. And then when they feel comfortable and ready, they can bid to get in and jump in on the action. And then they get to play for a little bit and then they get to fall back out of the action and they get to feel out their own comfort level. So I really like everyone as John for the other half of, of bringing people into tabletop. And how about the opposite question? Uh, the opposite question as in what are bad games? Like, if somebody said they were going to have their first role-playing game this weekend, and I am going to be playing in blank system, 
Is there a system that would make you maybe advise against it? Uh, yeah. Um, all right, let, let, let's give two, uh, cause Jim, Jim's never, never, never scared to be, to be a little bit negative. Uh, so we'll, we'll give the, the unpopular opinion first. So that way the lynch mob can cool off while I give my second opinion. Um, powered by the apocalypse. I think Powered by the Apocalypse is a bad system to start people off on. Um, A lot of the concepts sound very user-friendly, but they are really strongly based on our understanding of tabletop. The entire aspect of moves. Moves are actually a complicated thing. They are a simplification of a larger system that we know from D&D. So when we come from D&D to that, it becomes a much simpler system. But if you don't have that frame of reference, it's actually really hard to understand it. Uh, One of the core concepts with a lot of Power by the Apocalypse games and something that makes those games do very, very well is the idea of you're not supposed to act to the move. That's what they talk about. You're just supposed to describe what you're doing and then the GM will tell you what move it's trigger. And I think most Power by the Apocalypse games sort of work off of that premise. And it's it's a great premise uh, for, for you, for me, for people that have experienced experience with tabletop it is a wonderful premise and a wonderful game the problem is people take take it for granted so much as far as what a new player actually understands going back to what i was talking about with with everyone is john and everyone is john it's literally just a say what you're going to do if it has any chance to fail roll a d6 how simple is that? It's as simple as it gets. And yet new players don't understand that concept until they see it. Something like moves, something like just describe what you want. And the GM will tell you what, which one it triggers. All of those things are very, in my opinion, unfriendly concepts to new players. They're wonderful for experienced players coming from, from the D&D and Pathfinder side. But I personally don't think they're super great for, for new players. Uh, the other one that I'll give um, as as the the all the the pitchforks are being lit right now to burn down Jim McClure's house after he just uh, just disparaged the, the the name of Power by the Apocalypse is is my own personal favorite game Legend of Five Rings. Legend of Five Rings is not a user friendly game at all in any way, shape, or form. This is a game, when I introduce people to it, I literally give them 40 pages of reading that you have to do from the player side of it just to understand what you're doing. Because one of the core concepts is honor. And if you breach honor, your honor goes down. If you act honorable, it goes up. So you have to understand what honor is within these worlds. And there's a lot of weird concepts that we are most certainly not used to. So you have to get into this entire world before you can then get into the mechanics before then you're forced to play a game where it's all about character and interpersonal choice. There is multiple barriers of entry, and I think it would be a terrible game for people to come into the hobby with because it has a very high barrier of entry. It is the Dune of tabletop RPG. (laughs) I will accept that. Absolutely. Okay, I've got a tough question for you now. You, you, you've you had a few good ones already, but uh, let, let, lay it on me. I'm ready. If you could introduce a tabletop RPG function into professional wrestling, what would it be? <laughs> all right. So, so I have to, I have to clarify on this. And then as apparently all of my stuff, I have to start with, I'll have a story for you. Um, are you asking me what kind of mechanic I would make for a tabletop role-playing version of wrestling? Or are you telling me what 
RPG mechanic, like to use a stupid example, a wrestler has to roll a D20 before they can do a body slam like live on TV in WWE. So which of those two are you asking me? I think following the previous examples in this podcast, we'll just go with two answers. <laughs> okay well i've got an answer for one i'm gonna have to make up another and and again as i i warned it uh it starts with a bit of a story okay so incredibly talented I, and handsome <laughs> yes yeah, so, so the young incredibly talented and handsome game designer uh i kind of referenced it earlier I, i've been designing games since i was 10 years old uh i i always designed little games they were always ripoffs of whatever i'd seen so i have a final fantasy 7 ripoff i have a final fantasy 8 ripoff i have a hugo 3 jungle of doom if anyone remembers that old computer game um uh ripoff that's what, what i made as a kid and when i was 18 i got back into wrestling i watched it a little bit as a kid but when i was 18 i got back into wrestling and I designed a wrestling game. I did not know what a, a tabletop RPG was. I had had that one bad experience, uh, you know, at the game shop that I talked about before, but I didn't. I still really, I'd played the game for 20 minutes and barely even played it, as I described before, but this is before I'd had my first uh, real experience with it with 4th Edition, and I designed a tabletop role-playing game. And it was it was very primitive. It, it, it's evolved very far since then. So I have I have a fully built out system that I run it once a year at a catacon for a group of people, uh, sort of whoever wants to jump in and do this. But I have been playing this game myself for eleven years now. Uh, get, getting getting close to oh, it's coming up on half my life. Uh, as a matter of fact, a fun little uh, tidbit: I did my main event of WrestleMania right before this interview. That's why I told you I had to be fifteen minutes late, and that's actually why my voice is a little bit hoarse because it was a wonderful extravaganza of wrestling. The concept that I think most people miss, because there are some some wrestling games out there, um, and uh, the best one that I think is on the market is Nathan Paletta's Worldwide Wrestling, uh, which is a, a wonderful little game. Um, but the concept, if you want to do a a blow-by-blow match for a wrestling game, is what I have is a concept of, of energy, something I have no idea why it's not used in tabletop, but I developed it before I knew what tabletop was, which is essentially on your turn you have two choices you can attack or you can roll a die and gain that much energy and all of your moves use energy so while you're getting beat up you essentially can't do anything else but you're saving up your energy which then works as momentum and what this does is it allows you to have a fun sort of move by move wrestling match that then emulates what occurs in the actual ring of one person has control then the other person has control and it swings back and forth once you've depleted all their HP boom you can hit a finisher and uh, so that would be the, the concept and I also have a very, very early prototype because this works very well for like a Dragon Ball Z style game as well. But that's uh, that, that's sitting sitting back on the project somewhere because, uh, again, it's, it's all about energy and momentum and all of that. So that would be the, the mechanic that I would introduce into professional wrestling RPGs going, you know, there is a really interesting way to do this. And this is something that I've not seen occur in any other system. Um, and and one of the w- one of the great moments of my early design career is the first time I ran this for anyone other than my my very small local group of people was the first year at a catacon uh and john wick the guy who who designs uh seventh c and legend of five rings uh, who's also a big wrestling fan uh he actually was was in my game and he he played it and at the end uh he came to me and he went that was a really slick design choice uh to, to handle the momentum side of it i really like that and i was like oh 
right right in the feels like john you're you're like my hero and you complimented my stupid little design that i had when i was 18 and refined over a long period of time uh but no it, it felt really good so that's uh that's what i would bring to it um I honestly don't have an answer for the other half. Uh, professional wrestling is perfect. I couldn't add any mechanics to it to fix it, I don't think. It's just so perfect. Do you prefer RPGs that approach wrestling as an actual kayfabe sport or as sports entertainment? <laughs> um, I prefer it as an actual kayfabe sport. Uh, and, and, and what, what essentially we're, we're referring to is, uh, and it is one of the, the big questions anytime someone wants to tackle a professional wrestling style RPG, you have to ask yourself. And that is, do you want the players to play the Undertaker, an undead wizard that can actually summon lightning and has actually been dead and brought back to life by Paul Bearer? Or do you want to play Mark, the guy who plays the Undertaker when he's on the other side of the screen, but still has a family at home and contract disputes and backstage politics? Which of those two do you want to play? Because they're really different design choices. Um, and together with that, then you have a, is the end of the match predetermined or is it not? I like the, to, to play the Undertaker. I want to be the actual undead wizard that that shoots lightning um, and, and can do all the stupid stuff. And when he leaves to go down the town to the next road he's still the undertaker like he, he he's not an actor playing the undertaker uh and i like the stories not to be predetermined i i like to i like to have that match to have that tension to have that animosity which helps you build up feuds i i think there is a narrative problem for me personally of if i want to build up heat if i want to build up tension between two of us that are going to have a feud but ultimately the result of it's predetermined it's much harder for me as a player to get into the mentality that I hate you. Uh, the people that are doing it on TV are paid millions of dollars a year to be actors. That's why they're great at it. Uh, well, some are better than others, but uh, that, that's why it, it works. For me as a player standpoint, I don't think it gets nearly as hot as if we actually played out a match and you eked out that victory and now I'm I'm angry and I'm bitter that I didn't it didn't go the way that I wanted to do and that ties into, in, into the mentality that I would want uh, my Myself as a player or that I want players of that type of game to have. So I personally prefer one, uh, but there's there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with the other side. Why do you think there is such an overlap between people that play RPGs and watch wrestling? <laughs> there is a wonderful overlap between the two. Um, I, I think... There's a lot of different reasons. A lot of people have said that, that wrestling is essentially just a LARP where the audience is playing themselves, and there's there's some truth to that statement. Um, but I, I think it comes down to to one one core aspect, and that's it's melodrama. Like that's what both of these things deliver. It, it, it it's it, it, it's over the top, stupid nonsense. Sometimes high art, sometimes comedy, sometimes stupidity. Sometimes it's great, sometimes it's not. But it's this wonderful drama. That that we're building up to this moment that's going to have a resolution to it. And it's a very straightforward story structure that resonates with a lot of people. And I think that is the core thing that connects the, the wrestling audience with the tabletop audience and why there's so much crossover between the two is because we're telling this interesting, unique structure to a story and it's just high melodrama for the most part. That's exactly what it is. Uh, and I, I think that's the big link between the tail so most people always have a role play character in mind 
for a certain system. Do you have an in-ring persona in mind if you were to be a professional wrestler? <laughs> oh, I have uh, 44 of them printed out down on papers that currently make up my wrestling league, from kooky to serious to everything else. But I'll tell you what I actually enjoy more than anything else. And just recently, I did a series over on the One Shot Podcast Network where we actually did Nathan Paletta's Worldwide Wrestling. Um, and the character that I played on that is uh, I played the Jobber. Which, if if no one knows what it, uh, if you don't watch wrestling, you don't know what it is. But a jobber is essentially the person that who comes out and always loses uh, to make the the big stars seem bigger. It's it's their job to go out and lose. That, that's what in professional wrestling they call doing the job. Um, so I actually really like that because. Everyone, when I get around the table, really wants to play, you know, the, uh, the, the, the crazy over the top. They want to play a winner, you know, the end of the day. They might be a heel. They might be a face, but they, they want to win matches. They, they want to, they want to go on. And the fact is only half the people can win their matches because it's wrestling, assuming we, we have mostly one on one matches. So that means half the people have to lose. And I generally, as a player, have always been the, I'm going to, to fill in what the party needs. Uh, that's kind of always been my thing so ultimately what happens is there needs to be people that will lose and if i just lay into that if, if i just go heavy in that direction it's something that the table needs it's fun and engaging and i get to sort of be the weak wimp that no one else is at the table so i kind of have a, a different position so uh, a lot of times i i end up and actually really enjoy playing the jobber and like i said if, if, if you want to hear it at the time of this airing the series is ongoing over at one shot where i uh where i, where I play a jobber uh to uh to actually famous wrestler Colt Cabana. Uh, so it, it, it's a good time over there. So the WWE gives the book to you. What's the first thing you do? Mm. Okay. All right. Th this is going to be, this is going to be top hat or uh, 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 high hat for those that aren't wrestling fans. But uh, I'm going to say this with assuming that, that you all have knowledge of, of the WWE. Uh, and that is WWE's big star that they're trying to push right now is is Roman Reigns. Uh, he's he's the guy, um, and he can't get over with the audience because they keep pushing him, they keep pushing him, they keep pushing him, and they don't know why it won't work. Uh, what they need to do, what what they have on their hands is they they have the mega heel of all mega heels. So my thing, which isn't a unique idea, but I think the execution is unique, would be to turn Roman heel. Uh, and honestly, if, if, if I were to, to book it, we, we should have gone back and started this at WrestleMania. So I, I will allow myself uh, about three months of retroactive booking here just for Roman. As the GM of this podcast, I will allow it. <laughs> and it's not that much different because ultimately the booking is going to end the same because at this last WrestleMania, Roman Reigns beat the Undertaker and probably retired him. I doubt he'll wrestle again. Uh, that still occurs. I, I still want that to happen. But what I want to occur is they they have that match similar to what they had, and it's just the Undertaker is running out of steam, and Roman can just keep going, and he keeps going, and he's the the Superman that what he is. Um, he he kicks out of the tombstone. He gets up, uh, he, he, he spears him. He just, the last five minutes of the match is him just walking the floor with the undertaker, a merciless beating and just beating him. And then he finally hits a spear when he feels like it pins him one, two, three, it's done booze ring out, etc. Um, he then goes on from there to be like 
I'm the guy. He comes out the next Monday night on on Raw, and and he does a promo about how he's he's a winner. He is he's the best alive. He just beat the Undertaker at Mania. He's as good as it gets. And and this whole time he's doing this with like a wink towards the audience, like a you know that I win. Wink, wink. Anyone that I fight. I'm going to be the winner. And he goes on to have a series of matches where he just wins and gloats essentially about the fact that he's Vince McMahon's chosen one backstage. He never directly addresses that, but that he just always wins because he's Roman fucking reigns. And you let him beat everyone like that until you finally have the big buildup against Cena. And this would be like a Survivor Series. Um, you have your big buildup against John Cena, uh, and you have him just go over Cena the exact same way. Now, we've got nuclear heat on Roman because he always fucking wins, and we've got actual baby face pop back on John Cena, and we actually want to see John Cena have one last reign and take down Roman Reigns. That would be the the story that I would want to see told that I think would would make them the most amount of money and squeeze the last ounce of blood out of the turnip that is John Cena before he can go the way of the wind. Uh, and then you can choose to build up whatever other babyface you want with sort of finally the people that, that pin Roman. And Roman gets to be a heel. He gets to have character. He gets to actually, he actually has charisma. He just needs to be able to let it out. So that would that would be the the story I would book for this year. Okay, two more wrestling questions, and then I'll okay. give the non wrestling fans a break. <laughs> First question: If somebody was in your tabletop group and they said they just didn't get the appeal of wrestling, what storyline or match would you point them to? Oh, um. With, with without question the the uh, mm, I was about to say without question. Then I had another idea. They both involve the same person, and that's Shawn Michaels. Uh, I I think the match that I would point them to um, would be Shawn Michaels versus the Undertaker at WrestleMania 25. Uh, that for me is the single greatest match that I've ever watched. You don't have to know context of it. It has drama, it has action, it has a story that builds up to it. You can literally just watch it from the entrances and know exactly what's going on with this story, and it feels larger than life. Uh, so that would, I think, be be the one. If, 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 they, if, if they really want crippling emotional storytelling, uh, I would go the year prior to that. It was either the year prior to that or two years prior to that, which was Shawn Michaels versus Ric Flair in a retirement match for Ric Flair, uh, and that is just one of the most emotional matches that has the most amount of storytelling, not the greatest wrestling because Ric Flair was like late fifties. I think when that match happened, um, but it has some of the best storytelling ever, especially that finish that finishes is, is tragic. Uh, so those would I think would be the two, because I think the, the theme of this interview has been that, that you asked me a question. I give you two different answers for it. <laughs> okay. And you can give me two answers for this one. Also, if your matches, in the Worldwide Wrestling podcast, could be commentated by anyone. Who would it be? <laughs> well, uh, see, and not necessarily a fair question because as part of the game, there's actually commentators as well. Uh, so we sort of share commentating duties. Uh, but if I could pick uh, a commentator, um, it would all be for for selfish reasons. And um, you could make it a two commentator team with one face and heel. 
<laughs> oh, my reasons would just be so stupid and selfish, though. I, I, I go. I would want, um, I'd want Triple H and Shawn Michaels just so I could hang out with them for a minute. Like it's really that stupid and cheesy. I, I love Triple H. He is Triple H is my actual favorite wrestler, and Shawn Michaels, I think, is he, he is my. I think he's the best wrestler ever to live, which may be a controversial opinion. Shawn Michaels is amazing. Triple H though is my favorite, so I would have to do it literally just so I had those, even though neither of those two are commentators. You tell your opponent to throw you across the table just so they have to catch you. Exactly. Exactly. We're going to start wrapping up, but before we do, I'm going to ask you some questions from the Pivo questionnaire, pioneered by Bernal Pivo. What is your favorite word? <laughs> oh, um, wow. I, I should have a, 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 a I know, I, I know my answer. Uh, my favorite word is smattering. Um, I don't know why I discovered that word as a kid and I always thought it was funny and doesn't get used in context enough. So you, you, you will hear me work smattering into conversations at conventions just because it amuses me. What is your least favorite word? Um, here's a weird answer. Drift. I've never liked that word. It, it, it feels like it has too many syllables for whatever five letter D R I F T. Uh, yeah, like derivative. Taha. I want to put like eight syllables on that thing, and I've never liked it. Don't like drift. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I guess I have different different answers for for each of those things. Um, creatively, it, it, it's being able to to express a feeling or emotion uh through what i've done to uh we didn't really talk about during this interview but reflections the, the game of dueling samurai my first game that i kickstart uh i i pretty much pitched that game of i guarantee two people can sit down and in one hour have an emotional experience from that being able to to create that is 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 what gets me gets me up in the morning creatively emotionally uh I oh man I am I am so in love with sadness and loss which is such a weird thing to say um you know and and of course modern culture and modern entertainment has gone strong in that direction anyway um but I I love stories without happy endings I love having to deal with loss I I love everything about that is is just rife uh, emotional territory for me What turns you off I don't like generic. Um, I, I think we, we live in the world. Generic has its place. Uh, things like generic game systems and all those certainly ha have their place at the hobby, and there's a reason that people play them. Um, but my, my problem is I, I don't... I need something new. I need something different. I live in 2017. I have access to to everything, you know, from a design and a creative standpoint within tabletop that I could want in in a generic, in a standard marketable thing. If I want fantasy, I've got fantasy. If I want sci-fi, I've got sci-fi. If I want something like 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 GURPS or Savage Worlds or what have you, I I have all of those things. Um, and I'm I'm one that I get to look at a a bunch of different. Uh, I, I I get to look at a bunch of new games all. All the time i'm on different forums uh uh reddit rpg design r slash rpg design is a wonderful forum where, where people get to put up and have wonderful conversation about games that they're working on i talk with a lot of people at conventions i'm as a publisher approached a lot about games um and i've got to really take a look at a lot of different tabletop games and the number one thing that turns me off is 
if they're not doing anything interesting and different, uh, if, 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 if the the core thing that you have is, is that you went from a D20 to a 3D6 because you think a bell curve is interesting, uh, if that's where you are in your design career, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But but me as someone that wants to work in my own system and, and wants to wants to see new, wants to see new interesting ideas and new interesting creations in this world, I can't just see the same thing. The same thing is boring. It's been done. It's been done a hundred times over um i'm i'm sort of always on the quest for both myself and designers that i interact with and i I tell a lot of people this i go i don't want to see the next powered by the apocalypse game i want to see the next powered by the apocalypse i think that's what we should be designing towards i think that's what we should be striving towards as creators and the biggest thing that turns me off is when i see see people not doing that you know be creative reach for the stars try and do something big new and and interesting. Don't be complacent with what we currently have. Uh, so that would that would be my number one thing. What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? I I, I think it's a a very uh, one of my players. Greg does this, and I love it every time. It's sort of an understated "damn it." And what I mean by that is he'll go, "Damn it," which is the damn it, there is another level to this thing. There is more that we didn't see. There is there is more open opportunity, and now we have to address this. I, I love that. Damn it. I love it every time I hear it because it's a, okay, now I have to get myself emotionally ready to go into this next thing, and I'm going to love it, and it's it's the next step in in the story and the progression in what have you. So I, I personally like the, the understated damn it. What sound or noise do you love? Oh, um, God, that's a weird question. <laughs> um, Don't blame me, blame Bernal Pivot. <laughs> how, how about this? I I love the sound of dice hitting the table. Um, there's just something about it. It's it's possibility and probability and and stress and opportunity all coming together in that clankety clank 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 moment. Uh, so I, I do love dice hitting the table. What sound or noise do you hate? Um, sound or noise do I hate? Uh, I don't even want to say silence because silence can be powerful. Um, I'll go with the yawn. Yawn, yawn is boredom. Yawn is is lack of interest. It might be tired. There might be other reasons for it, but yawn is never a good thing. What game system would you like to attempt to run? I think the game that I want to run is uh, sort of a little-known RPG called The Mountain Witch. Um, it was it was recommended to me uh, by by good friend uh, Ken Hyde. A lot of people know Ken. Uh, Design, been designing for 25 years and when I was talking to him about game design and that's the one he asked me about if I had read The Mountain Witch and I hadn't. And I read this game and it has one of the most Brilliant and perfectly elegant mechanics I've ever seen. I, I as I'm a designer, it's it's sort of like like dread the Jenga tire, tower game of I go okay that's that's one of the ten great uh, designs that that mankind will ever have. It's been taken now. It's been done. I can't do it. Uh, but the game itself, almost no one knows about it, and almost no one's run this game. And it's just it's absolutely beautiful and brilliant. And I do want to get get together and and run that game at some point. What game system would you not like to attempt? 
Oh, see, this is going to be terrible because I'm going to throw some shade on something. Uh, I'm going to say Starfinder, which is the new uh, game from Paizo that they're doing, which is sci-fi, but they're 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 doing exactly what I hate. They're keeping the Pathfinder mechanics as opposed to doing something new and interesting. Yes, they're adding some stuff with ship combat that might be cool, but I'm going, this was an opportunity for a major RPG studio to break new ground in a very large way to the community, and instead they're not doing that. So I'm, I've no interest at all in running Starfinder when it comes out. When your game concludes, what would you like to hear from your players? I, I don't think I per se want to hear anything directly from them. What what I want, which I've, I've had the good fortune to see many times, is that when the game concludes, even though we hit the official stopping point, they are still talking about the story and about the characters, and, and both player and character are asking the same questions. That's they, they want to know what's going on with the bad guy. They want to know what's going to happen when the Jade statue shows up at court. Uh, is, is it going to singe the guy's flesh, or is it not going to singe his flesh? They don't know. And what are they going to do with either option? Uh, what are they going to happen because the um, the Imperial Herald just cornered uh, the, the one person in the corner uh, and has essentially given them an ultimatum that they have to turn over evidence? You know, it, it's these are the things that when they are having those conversations, even when the table is done and they're not directing those at me, they're directing those at each other because them as the players and as the team are so involved and engaged in the story that's happening, that is the thing that I most want to hear when a play session's over. And finally, if you could travel back in time to watch one person sneeze, who would it be? (laughs) Oh, if I could travel back and just watch one person sneeze. Um... Wow, what an interesting question. No other interaction with him. Just watch him sneeze. So who would I want to who would I want to see sneeze? Uh Wow. Hmm. Let me let me contemplate on that. Uh you know what? All right, I'll tell you. I I think I would want to go back and and see Cleopatra sneeze because I want to see if if just uh the if 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 her beauty was just solely overhyped or if she was actually uh you know the 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 face that launched a thousand ships or whatever the saying is. Uh so that I think that would be the one just so I could just so I could see how much of the stories were true and how much of it was uh embellished uh from her supporters after death. Where can the insiders find out more about you? Uh, yes, uh, if you want to interact with me directly, the best place to do that is on Twitter. I am at GM Jim McClure, and I pretty actively use that. Uh, so that's where you can interact with me there. Uh, of course, if you're interested in all this game design stuff that I do, you can go on over to my site, uh, which is thirdact.pub. Uh, and there you can download. We've got free games up there. We've got playtest packets. We've got the whole nine yards. Likewise, you can find those over at DriveThruRPG. And you can buy all of these wonderful products I'm talking about, Satanic Panic, Reflections, uh, and the other games that are that are coming down the line. Uh, so that's where you can do that. Of course, you can hear me talk. Interestingly enough, I do an interview show as well. Uh, not not quite as good as this one, but I do one called Talking Tabletop over on the One Shot Podcast Network, uh, where I, I sit down and talk to notable people within the industry. So uh, those would be the primary ways that if you want to interact with me or support with what I'm doing, what you can look at. Thanks for joining us in the studio today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. It, it was a blast with some really good questions. You can follow the show on Twitter at ITMS underscore podcast. 
or insidethemasterstudio at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, feel free to send us a message either way. Inside the Master Studio is an Audio Entropy original. You can head over to audioentropy.com. If you head to Audio Entropy's Twitter, at Audio Entropy, there's a pinned tweet that has a link to our Discord. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, tabletop RPGs are much like an endless waltz. The three beats of game interest, a handful of play sessions, and then people backing out of a session at the last minute continue on forever. love writing the backstory for your tabletop game characters just as much as the adventure? Ooh, yes I do. How about creating fun, kick-ass, and inclusive characters? Oh, I like that. If you answered yes, then check out All My Fantasy Children, a tabletop character creation podcast hosted by me, Aaron Catano, and my best friend, Jeff Stormer. How cute. Together, with our powers combined, we create a new character every single week with the help of listener-submitted prompts and a variety of cool tabletop games. But where can I find it? Find all my fantasy children on SoundCloud, iTunes, Android Play, and on Twitter at AMFC underscore podcast.